Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Matthew, the seventh chapter, where my Bible is open. And I'll invite you to be finding Matthew chapter 7 in your Bible as well. We will be there for the entirety of our study as we revisit our preaching theme for 2018 by spending some time with Jesus. And today we want to do that by joining His audience, that multitude that was gathered there for the Sermon on the Mount. Before we do that, and before we get into Matthew chapter 7, let me say how great it is to see everyone this morning. What a delight it is to be in this good number. We do have a great number in attendance today, even though it's a holiday weekend and lots of our folks are traveling and in other places. We've got lots of folks who are traveling this way, and we're glad that you've come our way and appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to come to this place and to worship God and to give and to receive encouragement. We are honored by your presence, and most importantly, you honor the Lord by being here today. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, I want to begin by reading in verses 13 and 14. We'll get to all these other verses eventually. But in Matthew chapter 7, let's start in verses 13 and 14. There Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I don't know if anyone here is following the NBA playoffs... But earlier this month in the Eastern Conference semifinals, there was a game going on between the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Toronto Raptors. And the Cleveland Cavs have a player, he's a third play, he's a third year player, he's a guard, Rodney Hood is his name. And Rodney Hood's actually a pretty decent player. And Rodney Hood actually made some headlines in game four of that series with the Raptors. The Cavs were actually closing in on what was going to be a four game sweep of the Raptors. And they were leading by more than 30 points in the fourth quarter when Rodney was tabbed to enter the game with about eight minutes left to play. Now, Rodney had seen his playing time diminish a little bit. He'd been struggling a little bit on the court. And so this was an opportunity to get out on the court and to get some quality minutes in and to, you know, kind of get some, get, get some time under his belt. However, when the coach hollered to the end of the bench and summoned for Rodney to enter into the game, Rodney waved him off. He said, I, I don't want to check in. Get somebody else. Send somebody else in. A couple of the other players on the bench, the veteran guys, they kind of kind of nudged him and said, hey, you better get in the game. You don't do that. When the coach says get in, you go in. Rodney was steadfast. He said, no, 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 that's okay. Send somebody else. And that left me, and I think that left lots of others, wondering, are you kidding me? Do you know how many people dream of playing in the NBA? Do you know how many people would love the opportunity, not just to play in the NBA, but to play in a playoff series in the NBA? What do you mean you're not going to enter the game? That's just, that's just ridiculous. To get the chance to showcase your skills to a nationally televised audience in prime time, on your home court, in front of your home team fans, to close this series out? You're telling me that when given the chance, you're not going to enter the game? What is up with that? What is wrong with you? And in fact, that is the question that he had to answer. Not just from fans, but from the other players, from the coaches, from the news media. The question was, Rodney, what's wrong with you? Why would you not enter the game? Why would you pass up such a golden opportunity as that? 
And I've thought about that in the last several weeks. Because in many ways, that sense of bewilderment, kind of we scratch our heads about that, what's going on there, I think that that is very similar to how we feel about people who pass up the opportunity to enter into the kingdom of God. To enter into this game, if you will, that we call Christianity. You just stop and think about it. We think Christianity is the best thing going. We love this. We live for this. Think about all the blessings that come with being a Christian. Forgiveness of your sins. You get to be a part of the family of God. You get to call upon God as your Father. You get to have all the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. You have brothers and sisters in Christ who love you and care for you and encourage you. Eternal life. We believe that being a Christian is the single greatest decision that we have ever made in our lives, yes? And so it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a surprise to us to find out that everybody isn't just flocking to come and be a part of God's kingdom. In fact, you'd think we'd have folks just lined up at the door, banging on the door. We'd have to sell tickets for folks to even get in here. People would be begging, please, tell us how to be a Christian. Tell us how to be saved. Tell us how we can be a part of God's kingdom. And yet, it's not that way, is it? Instead, we're the ones going to them. We're the ones begging them. Hey, do you want to have a Bible study? Hey, would you like to come to church with me? Hey, do you want to enter the kingdom of God? And the response many times is, nah, not interested. Get somebody else. Why is that? What's up with that? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why doesn't everyone become a Christian and enter into the kingdom of God? Well, I don't have all the answers to that, but I know who does. And I think it would be wise on our part to go and ask Jesus about that. In those verses that we just read in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus talks there about some people who don't enter into the narrow way. And in fact, for the remainder of this amazing sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes into even greater detail to explain why it is that people don't obey the gospel and gain entrance into that spiritual kingdom. And I'm interested in that. I'm interested in finding out what those reasons are. I'm interested in that for at least a couple of different reasons. First of all, to those of us here this morning who are Christians... What Jesus is going to do is Jesus is going to shed some light on some of those barriers that often stand in the way of people becoming Christians. And what Jesus is going to do is He's going to help equip us so that we can then talk with folks in a wise way and start tearing those barriers down. Let's get rid of those barriers so we can have just a direct shot right into the kingdom. And then secondly, for anyone in attendance this morning who is not a Christian. I hope that you will give careful attention today to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Because Jesus just might very well expose the very thing that's holding you up, that's hanging you up, that is preventing you from entering into the kingdom. And in just a few minutes, if the good Lord should tarry, you're going to have your opportunity to get in the game. It'll be your opportunity to get off of the dime and to then render your obedience to the gospel of Christ. Are you ready for that? Four things from Matthew chapter 7 that Jesus shows us that hinders people 
from entering the kingdom of God. And the very first of those things is right there in verses 13 and 14. Because Jesus tells us just very candidly that many people don't enter the kingdom because it's easier not to. Look again at verse 13. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. That then is set in stark contrast to what he says in verse 14, that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Think about that idea of hard. That word hard carries with it the idea of affliction, adversity. Jesus says it is tough at times. It is challenging at times. It is difficult at times to be a child of God. Being a Christian involves effort. It involves change. And of course, any time there's change, then that, that can be very painful. That requires discipline. That requires work on our part. On the other hand, not being a Christian, well, that just doesn't take very much work at all, does it? Not a whole lot you have to do to not be a Christian. You know, think about it. How many non-Christians this morning set their alarm so that they could get up really early, get dressed, get their clothes on, get out there and practice being a non-Christian. Probably not anybody. Nobody said to them, boy, I tell you what, i got to get up early on Sunday and get out there and do some sin and do some wickedness because I don't want somebody to think I'm a Christian. No, that's not how that goes, is it? If you don't want to be a Christian, you can just you can just sleep in on Sundays. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do all kinds of things. You don't have to develop spiritually. You don't have to engage and spend time with the Word of God. You don't have to worry about sorting truth from error. You don't have to worry about battling against sin and temptation. None of that. None of that. The laziest man on the earth would make a fine non-Christian. And that's why Jesus says what He says in verse 13. Would you notice there again? Jesus says the way is easy... That leads to destruction. Do you know what that's called? That's called motivation. That is called motivation to be a Christian. And when we're talking with people about the gospel, we need to remember what Jesus says in these verses here. Because oftentimes when we're talking with folks about Christianity, we talk about how great it is to be a Christian. And we're just, I mean, we're just pumping it up and saying, man, it's just awesome to be a Christian. What they're thinking in their mind is, it doesn't sound all that awesome. It's I gotta go to church all the time now. Gotta read and study the Bible all the time now. Gotta gotta repent and make all these changes now. All this hard stuff. And man, I'm just not interested in any of that. And what we need to give them in that moment is we need to give them some of this divinely supplied motivation, namely that the way you're on, it's gonna lead to hell. That's the alternative here. It's destruction, hell fire. That's it. Yeah, it is easy to be a non-Christian, but you will end up being eternally sorry for that. You will lose your soul. Now, I want to be clear. We don't want to be arrogant about that. We don't want to come across as self-righteous or holier than that. But we do want to impress upon folks that there's urgency here. That this matters. That this is crucially important. What we're talking about here is not the the deep theological discussion about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. This is not that that there's just such a critically important question about whether or not Adam and Eve had belly buttons. 
No! This is the core issue of whether we are on the narrow way or whether we are on the broad way. Because one of those leads to life and the other of those leads to eternal destruction. And we want to encourage people that, yeah, you know what, that narrow way, it is hard. But you need to make that effort. It's worth it to make that effort. Because Jesus tells us that sadly, many people, they will not be willing to make that effort. And as a result, they're going to be lost and they're not going to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't stop there though. Jesus then gives us a second reason as to why folks don't enter the kingdom. Pick up in verse 15 now. Jesus says in verse 15, to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. No discussion of why people don't enter the kingdom of God would be complete without this second point. And that is, many people don't enter the kingdom because false teachers lead them astray. Jesus says... Just as it was true then, it's true today. There's going to be people who claim to be teachers of the truth. There's going to be people who claim to be on Jesus' side. There's going to be people who are going to claim to to lead you and direct you to that narrow way. And come to find out, they're not exactly who they claim to be. They are, in fact, ushering people straight into the gates of hell. And I wonder if there is any tactic of the devil that is more effective than what Jesus describes here in verse 15. False prophets parading around in sheep's clothing when in reality they are ravenous wolves. In fact, do you see how these first two points really kind of work in concert together? It is difficult sometimes to be a Christian. It is hard to walk the narrow way. And sometimes when that happens, what folks go looking for is they go looking for an easy solution. Yeah, I'm still interested in heaven. I want to go to heaven. I want to be with God for all of eternity. So let me see if I can find someone who could show me maybe an easier route to get there. And there are plenty of false teachers who will provide that in spades today. Grace for the lazy. Church the way that you want it. No repentance necessary. Easy believism. You know, people get discomforted by the difficulty that's associated with the narrow way. But then along struts Mr. False Teacher who entices them with a much easier way. And it's not New Testament Christianity. You won't find biblical support for it. But it feels good. And it looks good. And it's lots of fun. And guess what? People like it. And that's why when we then come along and we offer folks pure New Testament Christianity, people scoff at that and say, I don't need that. I'm already saved. I prayed a little prayer. I did this or I did that. I don't need what you're offering. What happened there? What happened was they were deceived by the teaching of a false prophet. And you know, Jesus recognizes that that is such a problem that in verse number 16... Jesus actually gives us the litmus test 
to figure out if we can determine if someone is a false teacher or not. And I want you to notice here that the litmus test is not, does the guy have a degree from the seminary? The litmus test is not, does this guy preach for a a big gigantic church and have lots of congregants? The litmus test is not, does the guy have a dynamic delivery and he's an amazing orator of the Word? No. The litmus test in verse 16 is, you will recognize them by their fruits. Do you know what the fruits here is? Fruits here is talking about the end result of their teaching. Is the end result of their teaching... Men and women becoming Christians. That's the fruit that Jesus is looking for here. Does this person teach and tell the truth so that the hearers can get their feet on the narrow way and stay on the narrow way? Does their teaching produce a plain New Testament disciple? And unfortunately, that seems to be largely forgotten today. Lots of folks don't seem all that interested in applying that test to so-called preachers of the Word. If a pastor, and I use that term very loosely, if a pastor writes some big best-selling book, if a pastor has some big giant megachurch that he flocks and he leads, if a pastor is really well-known and really well-liked and is famous and popular, even if he's not teaching God's plan of salvation, Even if he's not a pastor according to the biblical definition of that term, oh, everything's great and grand. Look at all the great things he's doing. Jesus wants to know, what is his fruit? His fruit is not people becoming Christians. His fruit is people being deceived into thinking they are Christians when in fact they are not. And what we want to do as we encounter folks, and probably... Probably the majority of folks that we meet on a day-to-day basis living here kind of in the Bible Belt is probably going to be folks who fall into this particular category. What we want to do is we want to just encourage folks to consider what their pastor says right alongside what the Bible says. That's what we always want to do. All right, here's what your preacher, your pastor said. Now here's what the Bible said. You decide. I'm reminded of a story uh, from all the way back in pioneer days, about a religious debate that was supposed to happen between this big-name preacher, and this is probably before the term pastor was being used in that sense, but he was kind of acting like what we would consider a modern-day pastor, and he taught faith-only salvation, was really pressing that idea, and was really big on that, the idea that you don't need to be baptized, all you need to do is believe, and you can be saved and go to heaven. It was a debate between him and a gospel preacher who was going to press and defend the position that you do need to be baptized in order to be saved. Unfortunately, on the night of the debate, the gospel preacher preacher wasn't able to be there. The bridge was actually washed out. There had been some heavy rains that day, and he wasn't able to get across the bridge and get to the meeting place for the debate. And so the other people, they got there, and the big false teacher, he got there, he got in the pulpit, and he just started just bashing the guy. Oh, he's afraid. He He can't debate me. He realizes he's got a position that really can't be defended. No one can prove that baptism is necessary for salvation. Finally, there was an old farmer sitting all the way in the back, and he said, I can prove it. And so the debate was on. It wasn't the scheduled debate, but the debate was on. 
And so the first fella, he got in the pulpit. He just ranted on and on about faith only this and faith only that. Just going on for several minutes he went on pressing his man-made view of salvation. Then he sat down. Then it was the farmer's turn to speak. So he got up, came to the front, opened up his Bible, read Acts chapter 2 verse 38, and then he sat down. There was quiet. There was a hush across the room. That's all he's going to say? Yep. Just going to read Acts 2 verse 38. Then the first fellow, he got back into the pulpit. And I mean, he just launched right back into a big diatribe about faith only stuff again. Just accept Jesus into your heart. Just pray this little prayer. All this bunch of unbiblical doctrine. When he got done ranting, the old farmer stood up again. Didn't even walk all the way to the front. This time, opened up his Bible to Acts 2.38. Read it one more time. Sat right back down. That went on three or four times. Every time, the old farmer just getting up and reading Acts chapter 2 verse 38. Until finally the debate ended, at which point half of the people who were present that day went down to the creek and they were baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. And why? All because that farmer had the courage to stand up and to refute false teaching with the plain, simple, pure Word of God. And what Jesus is telling us in Matthew chapter 7 is that we in turn, we must know the Word of God and we must be courageous with the Word of God so that we can stop false teaching. Because false teachers, they do in fact keep people from obeying the Gospel and gaining entrance into the Kingdom of God. Jesus continues on in Matthew chapter 7. Gives a third reason why people don't enter the Kingdom. And that is because oftentimes... People mistake religious activity for actual obedience to the will of God. Read with me in verse 21. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says there, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It is of interest to me that the people that are described there in verse 22, they're not lazy. They would not be the kind of people that are talked about in the first point. No, these are people who are they are doing some stuff. They're doing some religious things. They're doing what we would call some some good things. However, they have clearly been deceived by some of those false teachers, maybe just some misunderstanding of the Word of God, because they are involved in all kinds of religious activity, and they think it's all great, they think it's all good, but Jesus looks at them and He says, No, 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 it's not good. It's not good what you're doing. In fact, Jesus uses a much harsher term than that. Jesus says in verse 23, you are a worker of lawlessness. That is, you are an outlaw. You are operating outside of the law of Christ. Outside of the actual will of God. Maybe they thought it was good. Maybe lots of others applauded them and said, oh yes, yes, what you're doing is good. Prophesying. Casting out demons, many mighty works. Maybe they even told themselves that they had done such good. Jesus says, no, it's, it's not good. And why? Because it wasn't within my will. 
What you are doing was not honoring to me. What you are doing was not glorifying to me. It was lawless. Maybe another term that we might use, it was without authority. I trust that you are familiar with Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, where Paul writes there that whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I want you to understand that's about a whole lot more than just doing something religious and then saying that was in the name of the Lord. No, that passage is talking about doing only what Jesus authorizes. What Jesus has stated that He gives His license to. And what that means for us then, practically speaking, is that means that Jesus is not just going to put His stamp of approval to anything and everything that people do in a religious way. Just because you assume it's a good work, and there are many examples that I could enumerate here, but just because you assume it's a good work doesn't just automatically mean God's going to sign off on that and say, hey, thumbs up, good for you, good job. No. What Jesus says is He says that you can actually be very religiously active, be busy with so many different religious things, but in fact, you can still be religiously wrong. That it's not enough to be good. It's not enough to be nice. It's not enough to be a religious person and be a good citizen. No, we have to actually do what has been authorized in the revealed Word of God. And let's just be candid, that principle, that principle is not grasped by the majority of people in the religious world today. It's just not. There are all kinds of giant, massive churches meeting this morning, even here in this very town. And they are doing all kinds of mighty works in Jesus' name. And they are not within the will of Christ. They are not teaching what Jesus taught about salvation. They are not worshiping according to the New Testament pattern. They are not doing what the New Testament shows to be the work of the church. It seems like there is this general assumption today that if there's good intentions and if there's sincerity there, well then, God must be pleased with me. But what we want to do is we want to just ask folks, and we want to ask them just right out of this passage, we want to ask them, well, how do you know that? How do you know that God is pleased with what you're doing? Is there authority for what you're doing? That's a fair question. Or are you possibly confusing religious activity with actual obedience to the expressed will of the King. You know, the good news in all of this is that Jesus has not hidden His will from us. We're not you know, looking at man, I don't know what Jesus wants from us. I don't know what He wants for me as an individual. I don't know what He wants for us as a church to be done. It's not hidden from us. It's right there. It's right there for the taking. Everybody here has got access to one. It's within arm's reach right now. It's simply a question of will we do what He wants or will we be workers of lawlessness? Jesus says, unfortunately, many people will choose the latter. And that is exactly why they will not enter the kingdom of God. All of that then leads to the powerful conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says here that many people do not enter the kingdom of God because they're hearing doesn't quite translate into doing. Let's finish it up. Read with me in verse 24. He just tells a parable. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall. Why? Because it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. and It fell. And great was the fall of it. Why are some people going to be lost? Well, Jesus says here, it's not going to be because they didn't know about the narrow way. And it's not because they're following after some false teacher. And it's not because they're going to be involved in some kind of religious error. No. He describes here people who knew. They did. They knew. They knew exactly what Christ wanted them to do. In fact, they heard it over and over and over again. They they just never did anything about it. They never acted upon those words. And I am particularly impressed with the imagery that Jesus uses to describe all of that because Jesus says it's like building a house on a foundation of sand. Last month when we were down in Texas for the meeting down there in in Clute, Texas, that's down in the southeast part of, of Texas, and it's just it's just a few miles uh, from the from the Gulf Coast there, right from the shore. I was talking with one of the brethren there at, at Clute after services one night, and he was talking about the difficulty and the challenges of living right near the Gulf Coast. And he said that where he lived, he just had all kinds of ridiculous foundation problems. That clay soil that really is Texas is really known for, that, that clay soil would, would shift and it would heave whenever it rained, and then it would it would swell up really big in the spring. But then when July comes and the hot scorching heat of the sun shines down, what happens is it gets all hard and then it shrinks up. And as a result, you get all kinds of wonderful after effects in your house. You have doors that won't close all the way. You have cabinet doors that just open on their own right in the middle of the day. Then you get those beautiful and wonderful cracks that come right there in the corner of the door frame and go all the way up to the corner. You, Some of you architectural people, you, there's probably a name for all of that, but those wonderful little blemishes that are right there on the house. And he said, he acknowledged, he just kind of told me up front, he said that he had heard all of the warnings. People had been telling him, don't build your house down there. Don't get that close down to the shore. Don't build on a sand-like foundation. People tried to convince him to go a little further inland. Go in there where the ground would be a little bit more solid, but he just confessed. He didn't want to do that. He liked the beauty of being down there next to the water, having that beautiful view every day. And he was fully aware that when the day comes... That a storm comes rolling through there. He was talking about how last year he was really, really lucky that the hurricane didn't get all the way down there where he was. But he is aware that when a storm does come and his house finally collapses, he realizes that there's not going to be a whole lot of sympathy for him. Because he had heard and he had heard and he had heard and he had heard and still he built his house on an unsturdy foundation. And what Jesus says here in Matthew 7 is he says that people do that spiritually as well. That is, instead of building their life on Christ, instead of building one's life on Him and His Word, people build it on really anything else. 
anything else, and in so doing, people reveal themselves to be fools. You know, I think about this, this last point, and maybe the group of people that really this ought to resonate with the most are the people who are waiting to become Christians. The people who are waiting for just the right time to finally enter into the kingdom of God. Because there's always going to be people who for one reason or another, they're waiting. I'm waiting to become a Christian till, until I'm older. I'm waiting to become a Christian when, when I get my life all cleaned up. I'm waiting to become a Christian once I you know, know a whole bunch more about the Bible. I'm waiting to become a Christian once I get this, you know, this particular habitual sin, I get it out of my life. But you know what Jesus shows us in this parable? Is that while you're waiting, what you're doing is you're actually building. You are building your life. You are building your house. And here's the kicker, whether you realize it or not, you are building it on the sand. That's what you're doing. That day by day by day, as you await to obey Jesus, instead of doing His Word, His Word that you have heard, His Word that you know, you understand what you need to do, but you are waiting what you are doing, is you are constructing your house. You are constructing your life a little more and a little more, a little bigger and a little bigger, and you're doing that on a foundation that ultimately cannot hold it up. I'm going to guess that all of us know of someone who they just got so much of their house, their life, they got it just so built up, got it built up so big, that even when the day finally came where they kind of maybe felt like the waiting is over, now I'm kind of ready to become a Christian, there was the realization that it's going to be too painful now for me to become a Christian. It's going to be too hard. It's going to be too difficult for me to do that because I'm going to have to tear this house all down and I'm going to have to start all over on the rock. And as a result, they never become a Christian. So what do they do instead? They just keep trying to live on a pitiful house that's built on the sand. And when the floods come, great is the fall of that house. That is what it's like whenever you hear the Word of the Lord and you know the Word of the Lord. You understand it. You process it. But you just won't do what the Word of the Lord says. Why? Because you're waiting. And waiting for what? Can I just ask that? Waiting for what? Stop building on the sand. Start building on the rock right now. And can I just say right here before I close this point? Talk so much this morning to people who aren't Christians. Can I say a quick word to those of us who are Christians? Is it possible, brother or sister? Is it possible that we have convinced ourselves that we can somehow be two house people? You know what I mean by that? That we're going to somehow get the benefits of living on the house on the rock and also having a house over here on the sand. Is it possible that you're saying to yourself today, hey, I've been baptized. This lesson doesn't even apply to me. I'm a Christian. I'm here every Sunday. I'm on the rock. I'm here. Okay. I'm glad you're here on Sunday. What about on Tuesday? What about on Friday? Are you still living on the rock on those days of the week? 
I ask that because it does seem like there's a lot of Christians who want to live over here on the sand Monday through Saturday, and that's really kind of their permanent residence. But they're going to come over here and they're going to visit this house on the rock on Sunday. Oh, that'll never work. That will never, ever work. That is a charade. If the storm does not cause your house to collapse right now in this life, you can rest assured that that kind of hypocrisy, it will lead to the downfall of your house in the life that is to come. Don't fool yourself. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, either you're a hearer and a doer of the Word seven days a week, or you're not. There's not an in-between. And the people who are not hearing and doing, they are the people who will not enter into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus brings to a close one of the most stunning and amazing sermons that has ever been preached. It is a sermon. If you were to read all of Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 where the sermon is recorded, you'll find that it is a sermon that beckons people to enter and to then live as citizens in this great spiritual kingdom. And yet even as Jesus says all of those things, He is keenly aware that there are going to be people who just won't enter in and live in that kingdom. There's going to be some people who just aren't willing to make the effort. There's going to be some people who are going to be deceived and tricked by false teaching. There's going to be some people who have convinced themselves that being religious and doing religious things, that somehow that is a substitute for actual obedience to the will of God. And you know what? There's going to also be some people. And I wonder if maybe this describes a lot of the people sitting in this audience this morning who have heard, they hear a lot. They just don't do. They just don't do anything about what they've heard. At the end of the day, what I want you to see is I want you to see that none of these, none of these are valid excuses for not entering the kingdom of God. That's actually the funny thing about the Rodney Hood story, the Cavaliers player who wouldn't get into the game. The next day when the reporters were all crowded around him at practice and they were asking him, Rodney, what's up, man? Why didn't you check into the game? Rodney, he didn't even have an excuse. There wasn't even any reason. He could not give a single good explanation, no good reason, for why he chose not to enter that game. And you need to understand that right now, there is no good reason as to why you have not entered the kingdom of God if you are of an age of accountability and if you understand your need for salvation. None. And I must tell you as well, that if you find yourself on the day of judgment, outside of Christ, outside of God's kingdom, in that day and in that moment, no excuse. You can rattle off all of these and more. But on that day, no excuse will suffice. None. Because you're going to be standing before the judge of all the earth. And that's the good news of right now. The good news is is that the Lord has been merciful and He's been patient and He's been kind. And He has granted you life He's granted you the opportunity to be here in this place, to hear these things from His Word, so that you would make today the day that you enter into the kingdom of God. You can do that right now through your obedience to the gospel. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you will confess that before others, 
If you are ready and willing to turn away from sin and turn to God, the Bible word for that is repentance. And if you are ready and willing to be immersed in water, then the Bible teaches that that's how your sins are washed away. That's how we're forgiven. The Lord then adds us to His church. We are a part of that heavenly kingdom. We can know the joys and blessings of being on the narrow way, the road that leads to heaven. Can we help somebody this morning to take those steps? Brother or sister, it may be that you've gotten off the path. You were on the narrow way once upon a time, but somewhere along the way, maybe some of this stuff got got in the way, and well, you started drifting over here into a different path. You need to repent. Come back to the Lord. Let's pray with you. Let's encourage you and help you in whatever way that we can. Whatever your need might be, let's all get on the way, the way that leads to heaven, and let's do that right now while we stand and while we sing.